Welcome to Pop Culture Rx, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's award-winning podcast. Pop Culture Rx is where we sit down with a medical expert and talk through various health-related topics circulating in today's media. In our discussions, you'll hear from a variety of professionals sharing insight and advice on these newsworthy conditions. This is Pop Culture Rx. Actor Colin Farrell recently filed for conservatorship over his teenage son with Engelman syndrome, a rare condition, genetic disorder, that primarily affects the nervous system and causes developmental disabilities, severe speech impediment, and problems with movement imbalance. Today I'm here with Dr. Michelle Syrak, Section Chief of Pediatric Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Joseph M. Sanzari Children's Hospital to talk about what exactly Engelman syndrome is and what it entails. Thanks for being here, Dr. Syrak. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. So let's start from the beginning. What is Engelman syndrome? Engelman syndrome is a genetic condition often not known prenatally or picked up that is usually genetically tested after a child starts showing some signs of delays uh, and we're maybe not just progressing the way the parents might think they would for their age and development. When children are young, and you were mentioning that, how would that even be figured out? You know, as a normal parent, would they know all these like developmental steps or is it just something that they pick up on? Sure. So part of the screening and why um, young infants are checked in with their pediatrician so frequently is to help assess for those things. So simple things that we all take for granted now, like sitting and standing, walking and running, are skills that were learned as an infant because they do none of that. (laughs) So over time, um, they should pick up and start learning and developing those skills. So if a child that's say six or seven months isn't quite doing what they should be doing, there can be some concerns. And of course, top of the list is an Angelman syndrome is a rare condition, but it gives the pediatrician or the family clues that maybe something isn't quite right. It could be very mild or something more significant. So does the syndrome kind of evolve over time? Like, is it ever something that could be cured? So as of right now, there is no cure for it. Um, It's there at birth because it's a genetic condition, Um, but it's something that in the beginning, since infants aren't really expected to do much, they have to eat, sleep, and use their diaper. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's not so much of the demand, but then as they get to six, seven, eight months old, and they should be rolling and working on sitting up and then hopefully working on crawling as we start to notice maybe they're not keeping up in time, it starts to become somebody suspicious. So the syndrome is genetic. So does that mean that Colin Farrell or his son's mother may have had it too? Or how does that even come to play? Excellent question. So typically this just happens completely sporadic and neither parents, even if they were screened for anything, would have been found. What it goes on is that we have 23 pairs of chromosomes. You get half of your information from your mom and half of your information from your dad. And in some instances, when the genetic information comes together and forms the baby, part of one of the chromosomes, chromosome 15, the mom part is missing a piece of it. The mom could be totally fine, but as that new baby was developed, that new embryo was developed, um, something went amiss because putting together genetic DNA is very complicated. Mm -hmm. 
So the baby is missing a piece of that chromosome. And because of that, there's parts of the brain that rely on the information in that chromosome. And that's what gives people with Angelman these set of symptoms that you mentioned before, um, as far as developmental delay, um, intellectual disability, speech and language difficulties, coordination, and a whole host of other um, conditions. But it's not something that you pick up on right away, and we can't really test for it in the parents. Unfortunately, to the question of what happens long term, there isn't a cure right now for it, but because we know where in our genetic makeup the concern is, that's where the focus and the research is moving forward, is trying to see can we do something to patch that area or provide that information for these um, children's brains. So so you mentioned like things we can do to kind of help them out. Mm-hmm. Is there like a, a protocol in terms of treatment for them because they they need to learn these certain capabilities in order to be successful at life? So as a pediatric physiatrist, that's what my job is. So I always say I'm not the person who frequently is diagnosing these children, although I have seen kids at a young age and have had concerns. They fit the picture of what somebody with Angelman syndrome has, and I would then refer them to the geneticist. We get the confirmation, but since there is no cure right now, it's not like that gives us, oh, take two of these a day and all of their delays will improve. Unfortunately, that's where the research is coming in. My job is to kind of help come up with those other protocols. We want them to stand. We want them to walk. We want them to work on their language and skills. So that's where getting the family and the child involved with a lot of intensive therapies, so physical therapy, occupational, speech, making sure they have the right educational program so that you know they, they have capabilities and skills to stand and walk and communicate and learn. Um, but they're going to need to do it differently. They're going to need a lot of support. And there's some medical challenges or um, higher risks. They're at higher risk for things like seizures, for scoliosis, um, for tightness in their muscles or spasticity. So having the diagnosis while we don't have a treatment is very helpful for us to then know what else we're looking out for, help guide the parents, and really help them plan for their child's future. So a lot of these symptoms for this syndrome are kind of similar to other, Mm -hmm. you know, children's illnesses like autism or cerebral palsy and, and things like that. You know, is it often something that's misdiagnosed, is it meaning Engelman syndrome, something that's misdiagnosed in children? Absolutely. When you look up the incidence and how frequently we see this condition, it's always kind of taken with a bit of, well, are we catching everybody? Um, a lot of times when I see these children when they're younger, the top concern comes up is autism. And there is some, now that we're doing all this research on autism and we have the information on Angelman syndrome, there is a bit of a link from where in the chromosome, where in the genetic makeup they might sit together. They're not the same thing, but some people um, can be mistakenly diagnosed with autism. And then when maybe they have additional concerns or aren't progressing the way we would expect, we do a more thorough genetic workup or we send them for genetic workup for autism and we find out they actually have Angelman syndrome. And then the same thing with cerebral palsy. Cerebral palsy is a term that basically means there was some sort of injury or insult to the brain. Um, And maybe we do an MRI of the brain that looks totally normal, but doesn't really explain why this child is having such significant delays and stiffness and tightness or that spasticity. So it can be very um, hard to diagnose. Most of my patients who I've seen didn't come to me at like three or four months with a diagnosis the way maybe some other genetic conditions have. They're more, we see them at six to 12 months. They're not quite doing what we would expect. And then the way they progress or don't progress on certain skills kind of fits the picture of Angelman syndrome, raises our suspicion, and then we work through the genetics of it. That's really, so 
just to make sure that I have it straight, depending on their progression is kind of how you figure out which illness or diagnosis they kind of go with. Absolutely. And that, that's the fun of medicine, the, the investigating, the kind of figuring out. It's also why, as I mentioned, maybe their primary care pediatrician seeing them so frequently. But if a child is noted to have some sort of delays, why putting them early into therapy or having them come see someone like myself, a rehab medicine doctor, you know, I tell parents sometimes we don't know exactly what's going on, but let's see each other regularly. Let's come in every three to six months and tell me how your child's progressing, you know, and if they're picking up on their skills and they were a little delayed and now they're sitting and standing and walking and the language is coming in, maybe they were just a little delayed and that's what therapy is there for and no major genetic workup is going to be pursued. I saw somebody yesterday like that. She's coming along beautifully. She's two and a half now. And at six to 12 months, she was very delayed things are evening out, lots of good therapy, lots of good parenting, and really no other concern. But that child, as we reach 12 or 18 months, who really isn't progressing, um, maybe even younger, it might be time to investigate further. But it's always a puzzle that, you know, children aren't born with the handbook, as they say. These children, as they get diagnosed, the parents end up building a handbook for them, and it's very helpful. But, um, you know, when when a baby first comes out, we don't run genetic on everybody, and it wouldn't pick up everybody. It's, It's definitely more complicated than that. So it's always watching, monitoring, excellent feedback from the parents. Um, it's, it's really a team effort. So the parents need to be incredibly involved in, in this syndrome and in any kind of child illness, really. Absolutely. Any child who has a delay, I mean, as, as physicians, we can't ask the six-month-old, so why aren't you sitting? What's going on here? You know, And it's really asking the families, what have you been doing? And some of it could be simply parent education, new parents. Um, you know, they're not they're maybe they're afraid I know a lot of parents are like oh I don't want to do tummy time you know they the little umbilical cord still there and and then again that's where the doctor can come in and just give them that advice typically it's not to the point where they're this delayed that we're thinking of a syndromic concern um, but it definitely can happen where just giving them that piece of advice or information but if the parents are coming in and I always say you know if a mom or dad is just telling you something in their gut isn't right you have to take a minute and look at it. They, they know their kids. And you don't need the app to look at the developmental ages and stages to know that. <laughs> um, whether it's your first baby or your fifth baby, uh, parents just know when something just doesn't feel right. And it's always worth just, you know, getting it assessed and looked at. And sometimes it's just reassurance. Those are the great patients to see. And patients are wonderful. But other times, you know, there is something there. And watching and waiting and monitoring is always a really helpful tool. Time is one of our best... Uh, allies in pediatric development because we really get to see how they're progressing and and especially when you're talking about something like these syndromes like Angelman's the quality of how these kids progress is really part of it is seeing you know what their specific um, issues are the language piece is very interesting in Angelman's the way they move so as they start to move more and do more you start to get a little bit more suspicion and concern. The conservatorship is a really hot topic Mm. in our media right now, especially after the Britney Spears documentary and the Free Britney Mm. movement and all of that. As parents of a child with a disability, so very different than Britney Spears' case, obviously, do you think that this was the right move for Colin Farrell and and his son's mother, because they're not married, um, because of this disability? Like, do you think that this would be the right move for them? Absolutely. So as a physiatrist, my job is to help advocate and empower any individual with any disability or different abled body, however you want to put it. I'm not a wheelchair dependent person. They're wheelchair users. And I'm very pro-independence. And there are a lot of people with physical disabilities 
but no cognitive involvements. And even some people who have some cognitive involvements but do deserve um, a lot of autonomy, even if they need a lot of support. In certain conditions, unfortunately, and Angelman's syndrome is one of those where you know it comes with physical concerns. We talked about scoliosis and um, spasticity and physical difficulties with maybe walking and speech. But frequently, this also is paired with an intellectual disability, very different than the Free Britney movement. Yes, very different. <laughs> um, and you know that intellectual disability doesn't mean that they don't are not full humans who have full interests and likes and dislikes. But when it comes to larger decision-making things, medical care, um, you know, housing, managing finances, these are individuals who are going to need lifetime support. That's part of why having diagnoses um, figured out and discovered at a younger age can be helpful for families because it comes down to a lot of family planning. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of my patients with any type of condition that's going to involve some sort of or some level of cognitive impairment, it's something definitely by 10 to 12 years of age, I start having these conversations with the parents and say, you know, what are we looking at long term? You know, your child is going to need somebody involved in their life. You know, they can possibly even depending on what condition they have manage a living day-to-day and have someone check in on them but those bigger issues they're going to need assistance with and so conservatorships are really something as a child then becomes an adult and turns 18 to give over a a child with angelman syndrome all of that full um, adult responsibility would be too much for them and they just really need someone to help guide it. So it's really just a legal process for them to continue making those medical decision capacities for them. Um, You know, even within any of our healthcare systems, having access to your electronic medical records is an example. As a child becomes a teenager, we try to get them involved in their medical care. As they turn 18, they have the right to kind of tell their families, okay, I'm taking full ownership. A child with a genetic condition or syndrome who wouldn't understand the complexities of it, it'd be very unfair to keep their parent in the dark. Having a conservatorship allows them access to it. It doesn't mean the um, child or now adult wouldn't be allowed to be a part of the conversation, but having somebody to help guide them is is just really important from a legal and a safety standpoint, too, for the uh, child as they're growing up into adulthood. And I'm sure that Engelman syndrome isn't the only type of syndrome that this happens for because it, I mean, we were mentioning autism and cerebral palsy, and it really just depends on their intellect and their ability to, you know, make those decisions. Correct. So there's, you know, a lot of conditions or genetic or syndromic um, where there's a spectrum of it. So autism and cerebral palsy are examples where it's really case by case dependent. I think they all are. But you can have somebody with autism who has no impairment in their ability to manage their day to day or completely autonomous and will go on um, knowing that some of their challenges are maybe more social skills, interaction or processing. And they've had therapy and guidance on that. You can have somebody with autism who really is unable to manage their day-to-day or would ever be able to live independently. And for those people, yes, it just makes sense for them to have somebody to help them along. It's a necessity that everybody assumes the parent or guardian or caregiver is going to do until they're 18. But based off of laws at 18, all of a sudden, those people get locked out if they don't take the proper steps and channels from a legal system to make sure they can continue the care of their child. And, and that's really what we're talking about. It's about mm-hmm. a, a child who would be unable to 
do this on their own and has relied on their family and caregivers, now just legally making sure that as they turn the special age of 18, they can continue to do that. Um, same thing with cerebral palsy. There are patients who physically are significantly impaired or wheelchair users, but cognitively are great. You know, they are going off to school and college and, you know, they might need a nurse or an aide to help them do the physical piece, but they can manage their own finances, their own household. And then you have others with cerebral palsy who really need that significant assistance. Um, it crosses many, many, many different types of disabilities, um, genetic syndromes, conditions. So back to the actual syndrome itself. So I'm a parent of a child, and I think something's off, but I'm not really sure. And, you know, I, I want to talk to maybe a doctor about it, so I bring my child in. Mm-hmm. Walk me through that kind of first impression for you. Sure. So I think that first step probably happens more with the pediatrician. Um, I'm a physiatrist, which most people don't even know what that is. Physical medicine and rehab and helping people meet their abilities and needs usually isn't the first step. But having that conversation with your pediatrician, with your family medicine doctor, and say, you know, I see that my child is not quite doing what I would expect for their age. What are your thoughts on it? And a lot of times if it's mildly delayed, if they're six month old and they're functioning more like a five month old, you know, maybe we might give some tips and tricks of things, activities to try and do to promote that. Um, If it's more significant than that, frequently if the child's growing well and feeding well, our first stop is doing things like physical therapy or occupational or speech and feeding therapy. And really what those therapists are trained to work on and do, as a parent, you might look at it and say, well, they're just playing with my baby, but they're really trying to work out the child. I always say 15 minutes with a physical therapist is us like running or spinning for an hour in class. (laughs) It's a big workout for them because working on sitting for them is hard work. And you kind of see how they go and progress with it. If things aren't progressing further along, they're going to give you that feedback. You're going to come back to your primary doctor and kind of say, you know what, we've been doing the therapy, but things still aren't quite where they should be. And and that's usually the time when then your primary care doctor, your pediatrician, family medicine doc might say, okay, I think it's time we get some specialists involved. Um, and for specifically Angelman syndrome, if there's a suspicion or concern, it might be straight to a geneticist. Frequently, it's to a neurologist or a physiatrist like myself to say, you know, let's look at this child from a neurodevelopmental standpoint. Um, developmental pediatrician is another um, specialty where they might get involved. Um, and really just see where they're at. What are they doing for age? So now the child's about 12 months old. Maybe their skills are more like five or six months. That's, that's much more significant than a little bit of therapy probably is going to need. And we start looking into it. We start digging in. We're still doing the therapies. And, and that's always the most important part. And I tell the parents is regardless of what the name of the condition is, most genetic syndromes, and this is where the research is, is to change this statement, but a lot of them do not have then that medicine or treatment. It's really we rely on our therapy um, to help these children gain their skills. Yeah. But having a name and a diagnosis helps guide the medical team and the family in planning for that child's future. Yeah, and it's almost like you want to continue going to therapy because you want to continue moving them and working out and, and working on sitting and doing all of those things because you don't want to stop. Exactly. You want them to eventually be able to do it on their own. So exactly. it makes it makes sense to continue doing therapy. I feel like even... I have friends that are occupational therapists and pediatric occupational therapists, and it, I feel like even a normal, happy, healthy child could still benefit from any kind of therapy. It could be very true. Um, you know, it's interesting in the therapy world, I, I get a lot of 
patients who come to me and it's like, well, they're a little off on this and a little off on that. And my job as the physiatrist is to say, well, is this something that really needs a skilled therapist to kind of work yeah. on? Or could we put together some really fun activities to do at home? And that's, as I kind of said, that's kind of what pediatric therapy is. And, and I have a lot of times students who rotate with me or even the parents say like, well, what does pediatric therapy look like? Like, we're not going to be like, right, baby, let's do 10 crunches and 10 push-ups yeah. and I want some burpees now. Um, and it really is doing all those skills that if you're on any mom page or app or looking at things, it's, you know, or Pinterest, which is where all I get, I get all of my activities for my son. Um, <laughs> it, it's doing those things, but in a planned therapeutic way to say, okay, well, we want them to learn how to hold a crayon and color within the lines like, you know, an older child would, but we have to start with building their hand strength. So let's get them weight bearing on their arms. So it's the therapists who really understand how to break down development and give it to the child in small pieces. So it's still going to look like play. Most of my kids who go to therapy, most of my patients, they love working with their therapists because they're working out. They don't realize it. They just ran up and down, you know, a jungle gym and a slide and they were jumping on these cool little um, pillows or yeah. whatever they're doing. They're having fun, but the therapist is trying to engage them to build those developmental skills and then teach the parents and guide the parents so that they know what they can do the other days at home. That's one of the huge pieces of therapy for any of these children is they're going to be with a therapist, you know, one, two, maybe four hours a week between all their therapies. They have all the rest of the time with their family. So it's very family involved, very parent involved um, to really continue every day to work on their skills so that they continue to reach those developments. Like you mentioned, we want them to stand, we want them to walk. And children with Angelmans have that capacity. You know, they are not limited um, oftentimes in their physical movement. They just need extra time to get there. A lot of support and therapy, sometimes some bracing, um, and a lot of patience, but, but they do wonderful things. Is there anything else that we should know about Angelman syndrome or or anything else kind of pediatric rehab related? Um, when I was preparing for this, you know, one of the things as somebody who works with children who are differently abled or with disabilities, um, I'm frequently the first doctor that the parents might come to after receiving one of these diagnoses. And, you know, Colin Carroll actually mentioned this in one of the articles I was reading. It's it's life altering, it's changing. Um, there's, there's a beautiful poem called Welcome to Holland that I frequently um, paraphrase for my parents. And it's basically this concept of is when you're pregnant and you are planning your child and your future and you have all these great visions and plans. And yes, some it's for this academic success, some of it's for a sports career. You have all these wonderful ideas and then your child's born and maybe they're not doing what you would expect and you worry and you stay up all night and you live on Dr. Google, which <laughs> is what all parents do. And then you get a diagnosis. And in some ways, it's a big relief because now you have a name. Everybody took you seriously. You knew something was wrong with your child and um, you got an answer. But now you're faced with a whole new, different lifestyle. Um, everything's going to change. And one of the best parts of my job is I'm the first doctor who's not coming to them saying, well, here's more news that's going to change, change, change. I'm going to sit down with you and say, okay, so what is your kid working on and how do we let them get there? I always tell parents, your kid's the boss. I'm just steering the ship with you and I'm helping you along. And, and I think it's really important that parents find that, and Colin Prowler spoke to this, like find your community, find your people, you're not alone. And that's kind of this idea of this poem, Welcome to Holland, where it goes on this story of like you plan and you pack and you prepare, prepare for a trip to one place. I think it's Italy in the poem. And when you get off the plane, you end up in Holland, but aren't the tulips beautiful? And I think when you're working with children with special needs, parents frequently need to be reminded that, you know, if your child's name is Joe, 
you still have Joe. You know, just because they added a diagnosis to their name doesn't change who they are. They came in Joe, they're going to leave Joe. They're still your son. They're still your daughter. And you have a whole team of people around you who are going to help your child reach their maximum potential. This is what they were meant to do and be. And we're here. And, um, you know, just kind of working with this population in general, I think sometimes that's a topic that's missed. Parents get a diagnosis and they're sitting there as all put together as can be. But when they leave, it all starts to set in. I think we see this in the world and equate it more with like a cancer diagnosis, right? Mm -hmm. We all have that understanding that when somebody gets a cancer diagnosis, we've seen this portrayed in the media where like it washes over them and then it sets in later. I think we have to think about these things when parents get diagnoses of a child um, in a very similar way. You know, they're luckily going to live. Children with Angelman syndrome are expected to live near full lives, if not full healthy lives. Um, They just need support. Um, And it's just helping them come around to that. And that's where a lot of my check-in with the families is. I may see them every three months and we don't change anything, but it's, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? And really gives them a chance to brag about what they are doing. It's hard to have a two-year-old who isn't walking the way all their friends' two-year-olds are. So they get to come to me and sit down and brag about what they are doing. Hey, you know, she's not doing this or he's not doing that yet, but we made this progress since we saw you last time. And I think having those moments where they can reflect on the progress and the hard work and the sweat equity that the child and the family are making, I think is really beneficial for their overall bonding, for their family unit. Um, It's hard work, but you know, I I love what I do because these patients are just pure delights and joys. And I think something you mentioned in there is really celebrating the little milestones that the big milestones yes of course Mm -hmm. they're they're a big celebration but the little milestones are pretty big too absolutely yeah no matter what has kind of brought your child to the position where they're at it it doesn't mean we shouldn't keep striving you know there's realistic goals and that's where having a diagnosis kind of tells us well this is the typical path um but you know everybody's heard that story I'm even researching for this. I was reading article after article of my doctor said this child would never do this and never do Mm -hmm. that. And and I don't know who says that stuff anymore because I know my colleagues and I that that's not our approach. You know, the outlook is just this is what the this is what the genetic piece told us or this is what the MRI finding was. But your kid is your kid. And, you know, they're going to they're going to make the progress they're going to make. You're going to help them get there and do all the hard work with them. And I'm going to try to help or your team of medical doctors and therapists and your overall team are going to help kind of just remove those barriers out of the way so that your child's maximum potential can be reached. And that's that's the reason for the team. That's the reason for the healthcare group that's around your child. But it can get lost in there and the parents need that support. And that's why they seek out the Facebook groups and the pages. Um, and, and that's important for them. But it's also very overwhelming and parents frequently come and just say I just don't know which way to go so having that team that can then kind of look and say well let's see three months ago they were doing this and now they're doing that we are making progress we're on the right track let's celebrate these things mm-hmm. um, I, I frequently say having the child come in and I haven't seen them in a couple of months and they just walk on in after last time maybe they were using something to help them walk or they weren't working and I get emotional and I'm like oh my gosh I'm so excited and the parents are like yeah they've been doing that for two months you, you said they would do it I'm like yeah but I haven't seen it yet so yeah. let's celebrate it and, and I think it brings a lot of joy and my, my favorite question to ask families when I've known them for a while is all right brag to me tell me about what they've done over the last six months and a lot of times with this population of patients nobody asks the parents that nobody gives them that brief because yes maybe they're six and we're still working on putting two word sentences together but you know what when they were five they weren't doing that so that's that's a joy that's a success and that's an accomplishment we should um celebrate and i think a lot of people especially nowadays they're always talking about different things that they might have and 
And it really comes down to the fact that a diagnosis doesn't define who you are. Absolutely. And it doesn't define, you know, who you might become later on in life. So with Engelman syndrome, you know, yeah, you might be delayed when you're two months old, but, you know, when you're 12 months old, you're you're up and going. And you right, can't... You're doing better. Yeah, when there's certain conditions, we know there's probably going to be a limitation to the level of progression, and that's why the diagnosis helps us plan um, but yeah, I, I never count a child out for anything. I just let them progress and move in. And I think it's important from a family bonding standpoint, if you were to you know, have a brand new baby and somebody was walk up to you and say, your child's never gonna do this, 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 and this. Yeah. It, it's just terrible. One, I mean, that's just a horrible yeah, person. Yeah, who does that? Who does that, exactly. But, but two, I mean, think about it from your own self-preservation as a mother or a father, you're, you're gonna retreat because you're afraid to bond, you're afraid to connect. Um, and it's not giving them false hope. It's just everybody working together to accept the current state and then to progress with the child and to see their, their accomplishments for what they are. And I think we should do that for all children with or without disabilities. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe kids would feel like they're in a lot less of a pressure cooker in general. Yeah. Um, but especially when we know your child's going to take longer to achieve certain skills. And yes, very well may not achieve certain skills. Um, it doesn't mean they don't have a lot of other special talents. Um, I always, my, my children who I treat, all my patients, um, you know, I've had patients who are nonverbal who have taught me sign language over the years. I know so much more sign language than I would ever know. And they taught me that. So, oh, this is a child with a intellectual disability who's nonverbal and, you know, can't communicate or do this or do that. But they're teaching me something. So there's always something to be learned. Um, some of them are fabulous artists, fabulous singers. They're hilarious. Um, really good. I have one who plays the piano beautifully, somebody who's in a band and drums. And these are children who maybe don't move as well or walk as well or can't do the typical things we think you know, on that, on that vision in your journey as you're mm-hmm. planning for your child, but the joy that they bring and the, you know, aspects of life that you never would have gotten to stop and see, you know, shouldn't be taken for granted. Doesn't mean it isn't a hard road, not taking away from the fact that parents, you know, struggle more, work more, getting resources for these children is a full-time job in and of itself, but having those moments to be able to enjoy it and, and having the medical team that helps them be a part of that is, is just the best part of my job to be able to hear and see what they're accomplishing. Um, my piece is very small in that role. It's just helping guide it, but um, it's really nice to see and, and to help the families remember that that's just an awesome part of it. That's awesome. Well, I have no other questions. So thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Syrak. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful. If you have a topic you'd like for us to cover, submit your ideas on hmh4u.org backslash podcast. Your suggestion could be included in the You Asked For It special episodes. The material provided through this Help You podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.